I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a one-on-one discussion about failure and resilience and features Neil Pasricha, award-winning blogger, author of New York Times bestseller, The Happiness Equation, and one of the most watched TEDx speakers of all time. This episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Neil Pasricha, welcome. Thanks for having me, Cody. Well, you've called in from just down the road. We're all in Toronto. We're recording out of Apollo Studios in (laughs) in downtown Toronto, and you're just at the park over the road? Yeah, I'm actually in the park, uh, (laughs) being that it's snow-covered, snow-slathered. But I'm I'm uh, in a warm room near near the downtown uh, Trinity Bellwoods Park for anyone who may be listening who's from Toronto. Yeah, center of the podcast universe is what I'm pitching us as. Um, that's <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. That's copyright to me for the the Toronto um, Tourism Board. But uh, we can have a conversation about you guys using that. <laughs> You're um, not wrong. I mean, I, I, I there's a lot of incredible podcasts based based in Toronto and a lot, you know just an incredibly dynamic uh, you know startup and technology scene. So. I feel I feel similarly proud about being from from Toronto right now. We uh, producer Adam and I were just having this conversation about identity and the identity of Torontonians. Uh, it's, it's obviously not the theme of the podcast, but um, yeah, I think uh, people want to identify as Torontonian now, whereas when I arrived about ten years ago, that that wasn't necessarily the case. And I know you're from Oshawa, so you're from just out of town. What would you call yourself? Are you a Torontonian, Neil? I, I mean, it depends how far away I am. Right. So, right. yeah, it, it, since I'm since I live in Toronto today and I live downtown Toronto today, I, I, you know, I talk about intersection or neighborhood. But, yeah, I mean, my, my parents came to Canada from India and Africa in the 60s. And so I, I grew up in the suburbs um, an hour outside. But, yeah, I think what we're, what we're all kind of circling around right now is that Drake has really elevated the status of our, of our city globally. Thank you for saying that because that's what I tell people when I go down to the States as well. Uh, I really do believe that. I think that that whole Raptors <laughs> movement and the We the North thing and Drake and that uh, really did solidify that idea of yeah telling people proudly that you were from Toronto, uh, which I don't think the city really had previously. No, it's, it's really not with the younger generation too. And, and it's also like fairly new that Toronto is the largest city in Canada, right? So outside mm-hmm. of Canada, you know, when I went to school in the States for a master's, people I was like, oh, you went to McGill or are you from Montreal? Like <laughs> Montreal was the largest city in Canada for so long, for so many years that Toronto's only taken the mantle, I think, for a couple of decades. So it's like, you know, the, it's not the capital, and, but it is now the largest city, which makes it a little bit more well-known too. Totally. Well, that's a good segue, actually, because where I ran into your work and where I usually start each program is uh, telling the audience uh, why I reached out to certain people. And um, with you, I actually ran into an ad on the TTC, which is our subway system, for the happiness equation. And I've got a confession to make. I looked at it and I was like, why the hell is a book being advertised on the subway? <laughs> and then when when I went and did some research into the book and then yourself, um, firstly, I realized your origin story is absolutely crazy. And, and I love your, your backstory and uh, what you've come up against and uh, how you've addressed certain challenges in your life. But also you've, you've kind of ended up as this, I think you were described as the Pied Piper of happiness through 
that book and, and uh, other books that you've written. And so originally I was going to talk to you about that, but you've got a new book coming out called How to Get Back Up, which is about failure and resilience. And it, it kind of doubles as a little bit of a memoir for you as well. So I'd love to talk to you about that because that's some important stuff, both at an individual level and a, and a team level. Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about that too. By the way, funny story about the Subway ads. My publisher said, we never want to advertise any book on the Subway because the Subway is full of ads for like, you know, kind of like how to learn English and, you know, uh, you know, check it, see who's the father, you know, do his DNA test. It's like, it's like this really like lowbrow advertising. And I said, guys, um, why don't you take a percentage of the dollars that you're dumping into like endless Facebook and Twitter ads, which I never, you know, I'm just like, seriously, and like get to where my people are. My people are like, uh, you know, they're riding the bus, right? Like we're, we're kind of like going around town and I want to, I, I actually had to, and it took arms, it took, I, it took a ton of arm twisting, Cody, to get them to put a bit of money on that subway. But <laughs> to this day, when anyone says they have seen an ad or anything from my book being advertised, uh, I think they're talking about the happiness equation. It's always the subway ad. No one ever has ever told me ever that they saw like a pre-roll on a YouTube clip, which of course the publisher dumped most of their money towards. That's funny. Well, yeah, and and you're exactly right because that's the sort of advertising that I was used to there, like go and get a massage or study for at some college where you don't actually know whether it's physically a college or not. And and then I saw, I saw your <laughs> yeah. books. I was like, is this a scam? Like, is this actually an international bestseller? And uh, lo and behold, it was. But um, yeah, but uh, it's funny oh, I because love that. <laughs> I love I, I didn't I didn't take that into account when I pushed for the subway ads that. Maybe, maybe, kind of grouped into the the general scam like advertisement <laughs> on some way. <laughs> um, but yeah, but yeah, the, the the sort of ten second story just, just for listeners is yeah, the Book of Austin was my first book. I wrote that in two thousand ten. That was in response to uh, unfortunately my marriage ending and losing my best friend. The Happiness Equation, which you saw the advertisement for, was written years later. At, at, originally as a three hundred page love letter to my unborn child after I got remarried and and my wife having our first child together uh, and then how to get back up uh, the brand new book is is an audible original to be coming out of in, in print uh, next year and that just takes longer to kill trees <laughs> and that one is a memoir of failure and resilience so what I'm saying is it's a it's a life story of mine told through a lens around um, you know what models and lessons can we can we all learn and share you know from from my own failures because we've all had a lot a lot of them of course and um i i just feel uh strongly cody that that the self-help world is uh like broken right it's mm-hmm. the number one category in the bookstore you walk in it, you know it's usually by the front door um if you if you read the ones from the 50s 60s 70s 80s which are still you know huge bestsellers i'm talking how to win friends and influence people and you know, seven habits of highly effective people and, you know, a lot, Tony Robbins and stuff like that. It's like most of it takes you how to get from where you are to, to where you can be better. Right. There's a, there's a lot of like, it's all about improvement. It's all about, you know, that's why it's called self-help. You're, you're helping yourself. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I, what I feel is missing and the thing I've needed the most in my life is how to return to your baseline when you're in a period of struggle. Right. Cause I, I feel like, when I wander into the self-help section, if I wander in there, it's because I'm in a low, I'm in a low, like I might be in a depression or I might be like going through a breakup or maybe I lost a parent or a friend. And then I don't really need how to kind of get more done, you know, (laughs) at that time. Like that's not what I'm going for. I I actually really need to return to the norm. And I think being normal, being mediocre, being average, 
these these are words that we have poo-pooed for so long, but I want to bring those back because sometimes just getting back to your your own kind of baseline is is enough, and and we need we don't have enough tools or books talking to us about that. No, absolutely, and that's why I wanted to pivot what I wanted to talk to you about because I think this is so important on so many different levels in terms of we. Yes, we have all these resources, like you said, to get better, but we we never practice failure. And and that goes for as individuals and, and as teams and whether that's a corporate team, uh, sports teams do, which is, is my background. Obviously, we practice failure over and over again. So that's why I was so clued into it. Um, one thing that you say is that I'd love your interpretation of you. You mentioned that they don't tell self, self-help doesn't tell the gray stories. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that the world has gotten so complex, right? And so um, these days, we, we meet more people in a week than we used to meet in a lifetime. We consume more information in a, in a, in a week than we used to consume in a year. Uh, you know, and all of these kind of uh, massive, exponentially increasing kind of, you know, uh, pressures on our, on our minds are, are just huge. Like, you know, it's just, we have information overload. We have we have friend overload. We have social media overload. We have everything's overloaded. And as a result, what's actually happening is um, the number of uh, emotions and emotion responses that we need to be more equipped to handle inside ourselves is uh, lacking, right? Like it's mm-hmm. not just about like getting a raise at work. Like half of us don't have jobs in, in the old, in this sort of traditional economy. Look at me and you, right? So it's like, uh, it's, it's not about just kind of like getting more done. It's, it's about, it might be about, for example, you know, um, h- how do you, um, you know, uh, when you're in the gig economy and, and you're not, ha- you don't have enough gigs and you don't have enough of a presence, how do you wrestle with kind of presenting a personal brand with also kind of being true to who, you're, who you are? Like, that's something that we didn't t- need to talk about a few years ago. And so when I say great stories, what I'm really, what I'm really trying to say is it's like, it's like a, a peacock fanning its feathers and there's just so much more to talk about now uh, thematically than we've ever had before. Yeah, and nuance is really important and context is really important. And I find we don't add that to the stories because I guess we've set up this framework for us where you know headlines are very dramatic to get clicks, to get advertising revenue. And so we, we kind of drive our news cycles through that. But ultimately what happens is there's a lot of nuance to those stories um, that we don't talk about. And it's actually important to talk about those stories. And then I guess our reaction to that naturally is to just take what's given to us and process that rather than thinking it through. And, and I think we've started doing that in our real lives as well. We just like you said, when we're not at that baseline, we just give up on something. And so whether that means quitting a job uh, because you don't feel good yeah. about it rather than maybe being a bit resilient and getting through that and getting back to your normal baseline. Yeah, and, and you and I are talking about uh, a, a nuance and, and um, gray and, and authenticity. Part of the problem or, or the challenge these days of doing that is we very rarely present our vulnerable and authentic selves. And, and the best example, of course, is social media, where everybody's greatest hits is got lined up, of course, with your internal director's cut life that you're living. <laughs> uh, similarly, look at LinkedIn. It's like a presentation of, like LinkedIn, I, ha- I hate LinkedIn, sorry. I, 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 I know it's un- unconventional to say that, but I just feel like it's everyone's dressed up self, you know? Um, it's too polished for me. Um, it's not vulnerable enough. I, I like, I, I'm not a YouTuber really. I'm pr- I've toyed around in it, but like, I love that YouTubers at least, and I know that they're more millennial oriented. They're at least more like, 
with messy hair. They've got like bags under their <laughs> eyes. They, they talk about how they didn't sleep. Like there's a lot more of that happening on YouTube. And I'm like, oh, I love this. You know, I, I love the growing movement within the larger movement of like people such as Solange, for example, you know, Beyonce's sister putting on an album cover with no makeup on the cover and her hair's in rollers, right? Like there's, that to me is, is getting more at the root of how we are, but most of us don't have the confidence to even get there. And so conversations like the one we're having and hopefully uh, the, the books that we've written help further that along because it's unhealthy to live in a, 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 a room where everyone's always dressed up. Totally. One of the most enriching things that I've done is me and my business partner started a website called Inner Voice, which is first-person stories from endurance athletes from around the world. And, and what we do is we focus on the not winning. So the actual failure that it takes to uh, to get to the start line often and, and the mental challenges of, you know, what is it really like for an Ironman triathlete on you know, mile 10 of the marathon in Hawaii when it's 45 Celsius and, and you've already swum three and a half kilometers and ridden your bike for 180 and, and the mental challenges. And, and that's been one of the most enriching things because these guys will dig into what it actually took rather than just talking about that gold medal that they won or what their favorite diet is, or what their new training plan is. And that site's been viewed, you know, a couple of million times from all around the world and, and helping to tell those stories, I think is, is allowing people to, to look at their heroes and go, oh my God, they have the same uh, self-doubt and uh, paralysis by analysis and uh, sometimes self-loathing that, that I have. And, and that's okay. How do you get, how do you, I love that. It's an amazing website. It's beautiful and it's striking and gorgeous and and, and so, so gratifying to know that people who look like a, a series of successes have millions of failures in between. Um, how do you, I'm just curious, how, how do you get, how do you get these? Like if, if, if what I'm saying is true, which is that people don't or are reluctant to present their more authentic selves and their more failure based stories, which we both know is what actually led to their success. Um, how, how do you get, how do you get a Patrick Dempsey to, to throw you a story like that? Yeah, it's, um, I think it's actually, funnily enough, refreshing for them. That that's the, you know, I've edited every story on that site, and and so I've either spoken or exchanged emails with with all of those people, and and the the consistent feedback is, uh, thank you for not talking to me about the same things that everyone else wants to talk about, and allowing me to. Um, to tell my story and then thank you for forcing me to dig into this stuff because I think the thing with endurance athletes and this is why it's really interesting is they spend so much time with themselves and so those conversations mm -hmm. are actually happening in their head because they're on the trainer for six hours a day every day and they're you know running half marathons every second day to get ready for these races and so those conversations are already happening in their heads and so it's just about yeah. teasing them out whereas I think for us, maybe we don't have enough time on a day-to-day -day basis. We only kind of spend that 30 minutes on the, the subway where we have a little bit of a conversation, but we can't really dig deep. Yeah, and, and I'm assuming, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but are you also getting from people that not only are they not asked about this often, but the process of sharing it can also be both therapeutic and like, like you know, inflating and inspiring and kind of you know, the, part of the, the benefit of having the conversation itself is, is that it actually furthers you down more of a line of success. Totally. And, and 
for me, I've encouraged a lot of people to actually use what they've written because it'll be the first time that they've told that story as a platform to help other people. And I know to a certain extent you've done this as well where um, circumstance has led you to a certain thing and you've grabbed that thing and taken it and said, well, I'm, I'm going to run with this and uh, use it as a platform to inspire people that might have been going through something similar to me. And, and on that note, I, I might flip that question on you. So going through the process of writing this book, you've obviously gone pretty deep and you've had some conversations with yourself and you've gone back to family and friends about some of the things that you've been through. How confronting was that digging into your life and talking about some of the, the failures that you've had? Yeah. And so um, the, the background here is that in 2000 and, and it's related to, I'm going to get to, to the today. It's like my wife left me in, in 2008 and my, my best friend took his own life in, in the span of a few weeks of each other. And both those things, of course, had, had months of pressures and stresses leading up to them. You know, so my, my friend attempted suicide once before. Uh, you know, I, I knew his pain meds. I was in touch with his doctors. My wife had hinted that she wasn't happy in our relationship. So, you know, when this spilled out um, and my life sort of sucked really badly all of a sudden, I had to sell my house. I had to find a place to live. I was single you know, in my, in my early thirties and I didn't want to be, I wanted to be married with kids. I started writing a blog. And so what thousand awesome became a safe space for me to process um, my thoughts. However, and this is the important point I wanted to make. I did not yet then have the courage to talk about my divorce, to talk about awesome. My friend, I didn't, all I wrote about was bakery air and the cold side of the pillow and wearing warm underwear from the dryer. What I'm saying, Cody, is that it still took me another year to even sort of like be tricking myself and just writing about positive things, which is what I did for a thousand straight days to then, you know, I literally had lunch with somebody and, and told them the whole story. And they were like, well, how come you haven't written about that? I was like, oh, I, I could never write about that. Yeah. And then they were like, that's the story people want to hear. That's where the book of awesome came from. I'm like, why, well, you know, even if you open the book of awesome, my first book, I don't even say the story in the book. Like it's, it's, it's hidden. And, uh, and it was only cause I got kind of pushed to do a Ted talk and I courageous, you know, I, I worked up the courage to sort of like, eventually tell that story. The response was positive. So then I blogged about it. The response was positive. And those two positive reactions, you know, getting a lot more notes of like, I'm in the same place. This happened to me too. Thank you for sharing. That then precipitated, to answer your question, finally, um, is, is me thinking, how deep could I go here? Like, how, how much do I have? Like, I don't know if I could pull off sort of like an open by Andre Agassi, you know, or like a, you know, a, a, like a let's pretend this never happened by Jenny Lawson. Like these people go so deep or, or the liars club by Mary Carr. Like I'm giving you examples of memoirs that were inspiring to me, but I'm like, how deep can I go? Like how much can I share? And so I tried my best to write as openly, authentically as possible, knowing in my head, I don't have to show anybody this. But when I eventually showed my wife, say the article about me discovering that I had one testicle when I was in grade nine gym class, I never knew, um, or, or, you know, how I, how I fell into, uh, marijuana or how I, um, how I, uh, like what the emotional side of, of the divorce really was and, and losing my friend. When I started writing these things and showing them to my wife, she was starting to, she was learning more about me than I'd even shared with her. And that of course is very therapeutic and healthy for any relationship. Um, you know, to go, so then I had to say, well, do I, am I comfortable to share this with my sister and my parents, you know? And, and so those are some 
stressful thoughts, really. I, I did not know if I wanted to share everything with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even I had things in there about not wanting to be Indian. I'm, I'm brown for those that can't see me, which is everyone. Um, and, and like, I grew up wanting to be white, like pretty, 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 like I grew up in a white school. I talk all, all about like, I didn't like the smell of my own house and my mom's cooking stuff. Or, you know, in, in my view, I was like, it's Indian food, gross. Like I, I was really like negative on my culture. And I was a bit ashamed to show those stories to my parents. But of course, when I sat down with them, it made us connect a little bit more deeper. Um, there was questions that they had about some things, understandably. But after I showed my wife and my parents, then it became something that I could show, you know, a publisher, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and see, and then, and then that was, um, publishers are really well-trained. Uh, the good news for you and I is that they're well-trained to have no judgment. <laughs> like they're the least judgmental people in the world because, they publish all kinds of stuff, right? Like they've long blown past things like censorship and, and, and first amendment rights. And, and so they, they're, they're, there's no way I was going to surprise them. So when I got to that point, I started realizing that the benefits of doing this were, were outweighing the cost of, for example, you know, uh, my, my so, so like this, cause I, and you can hear it in my voice even now, like I was still worried about like putting some of this stuff out there, but the one of the first guys ever, to listen to uh, how to get back up when it first came out on Audible was was my best friend. Uh, I won't say his name for his own privacy, um, but I've known him since I was a kid. And uh, he reached out to me and said, "I'm blown away by the story because I also have one ball." And I like I I, I I grew up also. I had a surgery when I was five. I had a hernia. Like I, I, something I've been ashamed about my whole life. Um, I have never told anyone, obviously, other than like in my wife and just even you sharing that made me, made me feel comfortable to tell you. And it's like, I know that's really weird to throw at you, Cody. Like, okay. And Neil was his old friend from elementary school are connecting over having kind of like a, you know, physical deformity or, or a thing like that. But it is what I'm showing you that the connection point I've made can outweigh the cost of sharing it. And therefore that's an inspirational story to me to tell me to keep, keep, keep sharing. You know? And, and that's the magic of the whole thing is that, once you start to share those stories, and again, they don't need to be necessarily in the public, but once you've shared them, you start to radiate that and, and you create this kind of wavelength where people actually respond to you and say, oh my God, me too. And that just, yeah, that creates exactly. dialogue. Exactly. Totally. I totally agree. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just like baby steps, right? Like it's just going a little deeper, a little deeper. And the other thing that, that's worth, what's worth noting is you said it doesn't have to be public. And I like that because the interesting thing is even if you, and this is a point my wife made to me, even if you do release things publicly, the world is so full these days. Like there's so much information. There's so much content. There's so much stuff that people need to very, very carefully, choicefully and thoughtfully self-select into whatever content they consume. Meaning that even having, as and you know, you know, you know this, like having your book on Amazon is relatively meaningless because people actually have to choose to go there, read some of it, decide to buy it, decide to you know spend their money, and then the hard part, actually read it. So like even when you go so far as to share the thing, um, only the people that get there are the ones that have chosen to sort of follow down the path of choosing to consume past the point where you know that they're already kind of like in it. Like they're, they're in there with you because they, they didn't accidentally stumble upon it. It's not like they, they have, they're not in jail with two books to read. Like they're on Amazon with 200 million books to read and they picked yours. <laughs> no, exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. And even getting them on the page, is uh, that's just half the battle too. Then they've got to uh, push a buy in one click. Um, <laughs> but uh, what one of the things... Uh, the stat I've always wondered, by the way, is what percent of books that are purchased are actually read? To me, that is the ultimate stat on, on books that, that nobody really knows. No. I heard, an, well, another Torontonian, Michael Bungay-Stanier, had a stat. I think it was 93% of books never sell more than 1,000 copies. But then, yeah, there's, there's micro stats in there. I, I agree with you. I would be fascinated to find that out, how many don't even get to the, you know, past the introduction. I mean, maybe the way to figure it out is look at your own books. <laughs> maybe we should, okay, so on my bookshelf, I have a, if I have 1,000 books, I've probably read 200 of them. Right. So right away, I have an 80% non-read rate on my own books. I'm going to pitch this idea to you. You and me, web series, we go into people's houses, we bust in, <laughs> we look at their bookshelves, and we, we try to do the sums on how many books they've actually touched that are on the bookshelf. That's a great, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. And, and there's some, there's a, there's a, there's some sort of higher level thematic there about, about, I because I have I have a podcast. It's called Three Books. It's all about reading. Um, and I, one of the values I have for my podcast is in an era of infinite choice, the value of curation skyrockets. Yes, you know. And so it's just so much much more a valuable skill now to decide what to even have on your shelf, to decide even what to have on your bedside table, to decide where to put your brain for the you know few hours a day you're awake. A few days, a, a life you're you're alive. Like it, it's it's so much harder to do that now. It really is, which is a really big reason why we should both pause right now and say thank you to those listening. Thank <laughs> you to everyone listening. To do that. Right. Thanks, mom. <laughs> Thanks, seven followers on my Twitter handle. <laughs> I want to I want to go back to the the vulnerable conversation for a second because one of the things that I talk about in where others won't is this idea of vulnerable organizations. And so there's there's the personal side which we've talked about, but then what happens is that that same idea manifests itself in in the business world or it can if we allow it to. So once you show vulnerability to an audience, people will respond with their own vulnerability. And so the point that I get to in, in where others won't is what about job descriptions? What about the way that we're promoting our businesses and, and how we're bringing people in? And instead of feeding them the bravado, we're growing, you know, we're adding new clients, we're going to set you up for success whatever it may be, that, that whole job description process is broken for me. And what I'd love to see is this same idea of vulnerability come into that where we actually go to the market and, and maybe we say, you know what, we're actually struggling because the reaction from the market is going to be, I actually wouldn't mind going into a struggling organization and helping them grow rather than what we do at the moment where we, we sell each other bullshit for a couple of interviews and yeah. then for the first six months of while well, that person's on the job. And then we realize that we've been sold a dud and uh, we leave. Um, yeah. How do we get to that point where even our organizations are potentially showing a little bit of vulnerability about where they're at? Yeah, okay. I got, I got some good thoughts on this. Uh, first of all, Michael Bungay Sr., uh, it sounds like he's a mutual friend. And he's very gifted at this. So on his, his Amazon bio for you know his book, his great book, The Coaching Habit, you know, he, he has a whole bunch of stuff in that bio about like how he was sued for defamation once. He got into a fight at school and all these kind of like 
hilariously negative thing before he then says, oh, by the way, I'm also like a Rose scholar and you know, <laughs> I sold a million books or whatever. So, um, uh, yes, it's powerful. And, and I, I just interviewed for, for three books for my podcast. I just interviewed Chip Wilson. Right. So Chip Wilson is the founder of Lululemon and um, was the former CEO. He was, I, you know, I don't really know the, the, the story enough, but at some point he was ousted, you know, private equity. And, and now he, he kind of goes on about how Lululemon has lost its way. You know, and, and he's pretty open about that, which is which is amazing that he's courageous enough and vulnerable enough to do that because it's his his company. Uh, and so I talked to him about this. I asked him asked this exact question. He said, "Okay, the big thing you need to watch out for in company culture is is what he calls professional interviewers, which is you called it feeding each other BS, but like he has a phrase for it that I love: professional interviewers. They're so good. They just look so good. They sound good in meetings. They they look good in interviews. They they look good in presentations. But they do nothing." And they don't accomplish anything. And all of us have had bosses like this, right? So what's the solution? I have two big, two big proposed solutions, okay? One I've written an article about, one I haven't yet. The one I've written an article about is called uh, Embrace the Gaps, okay? Love the Gaps. Because I've done a ton of interviews. I spent 10 years working in human resources at Walmart. Um, so I did like over 1,000 interviews. And I always, when I, when I sat down across with someone, I always said, um, what would you do in, you know, 2008? Because it looks like there was eight months here where, you know, you left your last job and you, and you didn't start your next one. And the person turns red. They're very <laughs> embarrassed. Yeah. And, and they don't like that because what, what really was, happened was they're unemployed, right? Like they're looking for a job. But the reason I pick at that little scab is because the best candidates say something like this. You know what I did? I went to Burning Man and I decided to learn French. And you know what else I did is I took that pot cooking course I, I really wanted, pot making course I really wanted to take. Turns out by doing those three things, I came to a couple conclusions. One, I, this, this became my new vision for what I really want to do in my career, more of an arts base, et cetera, et cetera. And two, I, I recognized that gaps or pauses in my life were going to be, continue to be important. So I, had, I have some questions about your uh, you know, sabbatical pause later in the interview. Whoa, you know, it's like that person just slapped me back and they gave me value and confidence in the gap. The gap is an opportunity to be very confident or unconfident. And we today hide our gaps right? We don't even put them on a resume. We, we kind of maybe fudge the numbers a bit or even worse, stay in the job we don't like till we find a job we might so that we can jump with what appears to be no gap. So it looks like it's more of our choice when really we were kindly asked to leave a while ago or, or we sucked and hated it for a while. So embrace the gaps is, is a theme and a value that I think we need to do more. Okay, that's one. The second thing to, to get at this is this has been a big passion project for mine for a while is... Um, uh, and I and I sort of spearheaded this at Walmart while I was there, but no one loved it. No one liked it. Okay, uh, but but I think it's because I was just, I was just too early. And this is this: um, embrace demotions, demotion. Okay, in corporations, the idea of demoting yourself, going down a level, going from an executive to a manager, going from a manager to a solo contributor, these are considered extremely negative. So negative that when people are given the option of going for a demotion or leaving the company, almost always they would rather leave to save face than, than go down a level. Okay. Now, let me give you, you, you your sports guy. So, like, what happens to the pitcher whose arm gets a little bit rubbery at the end of his career? They move him from a starter to the bullpen, right? That's pretty normal. What happens to the quarterback? He gets he becomes a backup quarterback. There's a, there's a game uh, played recently between Tom Brady and this other journeyman quarterback whose name I can't remember. It's like they've been playing the same number of years. The other guy never heard of, 
he's just been a backup quarterback after like year one. Right. Right. Um, and then, and as you and you and I both know, then there's, there's all kinds of other options where they can you know be a pinch hitter or a pinch runner or whatever. Um, so it's embraced in the sports world, but in the corporate world, it's like disgusted upon. And, and it's a problem because those people often have the most to give. We often promote them past their, past their level of competency, or they no longer have an interest in leading a large team. They, they really want to get back into the design work or the writing work or the, you know, developer work that they used to do. So I want to inside big companies, and it's unfortunate that I'm not directly involved at Walmart anymore. I left two years ago to, to write full time. Um, but if I get my, if I get a mouthpiece and I sometimes do, I say, put someone on stage at your company who just got a demotion, who accepted it. Talk about how we can celebrate that person, show the value they're bringing to the organization from a mentorship and coaching point of view and celebrate them so positively that the next time you offer somebody a demotion or an exit, they take the demotion because they know they will be celebrated too. That is a, a heel turn, like it's a huge pivot corporations need to make. I love that. Two things that I was thinking of when you were talking there. One is I get asked this quite a bit as well. What happens if I show that vulnerability at the job interview, going back to your first point there, and I don't get the job? And the answer to that is you don't want that job anyway. If you've gone in there and and shown that vulnerability and the reaction from the business has been, well, we don't want that person because they're flaky, you don't want to work with them anyway. So your perception of that company and the fact that you wanted to work work for them has been wrong. And that's okay. Uh, but putting it out there and like we were talking about earlier, once you start to talk about those things, you will radiate that and you will actually attract companies that you do want to work for. So you kind of have to go through the process of doing that. And it's not about doing it once and then shelving it because it failed. Uh, it's about continuing to do it so that you can attract more businesses, more managers. It might be that you meet a manager who's looking for someone like you at the pub on a Friday night. But uh, however it manifests, it's going to happen. I firmly believe that. And then to your second point there, the perfect example of of going back down, uh, we've forgotten that Bill Belichick was essentially a, um, a failed head coach for the Cleveland Browns. He went back down. He became an assistant coach uh, and had to work his way back up. And he actually got a job with the New York Jets before the Patriots job and he quit on his first day at his introductory press conference. So again, massive red flags against him. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I think it's on YouTube. You can look it up. Bill Belichick, New York Giants, and he gets up there and says, this is my resignation from the position of head coach and he'd been in there for about six hours um, and then gets the Patriot job. And so again, uh, had an opportunity as a head coach in the corporate world, he would have said, well, I'm a head coach now, so I can only work in head coaching positions, but went back down, continued to learn, and then came back up. And that's what has hence created that this Patriots dynasty um, was him you know, accepting that and, and going back down and continuing to learn. So I absolutely love that concept. Why did he resign for one day? Uh, there was an, I believe there was an ownership change at the time and smartly, um, decided that the owner wasn't going to set him up for success, which is uh, wow. a complete um, – that's what you need to do in the NFL. You need to understand how the yeah. owner is going to set you up. So it was a smart move. Yeah. And you know what um, is interesting also, 
because uh, we're hit talking about vulnerability a lot, but because this is to your earliest point about, about complexity and gray, there's also a right and wrong way to be vulnerable in an interview. So, you know, if, if you get into an interview and you start talking about how you're, you know, you're, you're going to be honest, you know, your old boss kind of really, you know, messed you over or, um, you know, uh, you're going to be like, you know, those two years, I didn't even know what I was doing. Like I was totally lost. Like, like, you know, th- some of that might be really honest, but it goes past the line of showing good judgment. Right. What you want to do is show vulnerability in an earnest way, and you can still be confident about it and, and, and demonstrate a vulnerability in a positive, a positive light. So, for example, those two examples I just said, uh, you can say, um, hey, I was in a role. It was designed this way. I found that that really took advantage of my skills. Over time, the role changed. These became the skills that were most important because uh, what I really value is this. It was no longer a fit. Uh, and, and I'm really going to be honest about that, that I, 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 you can even say I wrestled with that or I struggled with that. It was challenging for me to recognize that I wasn't a good fit for a role that I'd loved. But you can you can use vulnerable words, but also also you don't have to like sort of because it's, you know, it's a red flag for an interviewer if you go in there and start trashing your old boss. <laughs> yes. Right. Because what they're thinking is, so you sound like someone who might trash me, you know, um, you know, or, or maybe. I, I didn't hear the boss's side of the story. Maybe you're just hard to deal with, right? And I have half an hour to compare you to 17 other people. So it's not like I'm going to have time to dig deep. So vulnerability in, with confidence as, as an injected dose can, can be powerful. I just, I just wanted to add that caveat because there is also kind of a, a negative way to do it. Totally. Yeah. And um, in the other episode we have with Adam Grant, he actually talks about that as well and, and some of the research behind essentially how to be vulnerable and, and certain words that you can use to your point. Um, I hate to do this. I think we'll continue this conversation at uh, Bellwoods Brewery one day, but um, tell everyone where they can find you. Where can they find the new book and, and everything that you've been up to? Uh, sure. Well, the new book is called How to Get Back Up. It's on Audible as an Audible original. It's going to come out from Simon & Schuster next year in print. And the big project I'm working on is my podcast. It's called Three Books. Um, we uncover the three most formative books of inspiring people like David Sedaris, Chris Anderson, Malcolm Gladwell, Friday Brown, Judy Bloom, um, Seth Godin. And the world's greatest, Seth Godin, the world's greatest Uber driver uh, who has 5,000 rides and a 4.99 rating. So Three Books has just been a passion of mine. And I, I should be asked, you know, these are all books that people have read. That's the first point. <laughs> And the last point. I would hope so. But there's the three, there's the three books that shaped their life the most, so I have to presume that they've read them. No, it is fantastic. I, I heard the episode with Seth, uh, who's uh, super into that world as well and, and can describe the books in, in immaculate detail, as you would expect from him. Um, but uh, He's like talking, to Yoda. It's like talking to Yoda when you sit down with him. <laughs> Awesome. Neil, Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been 45 minutes filled with uh, learning and, um, and takeaways for everyone. So thank you for joining us. And like I said, we'll catch up uh, one day for a, a beer and continue the conversation. Thanks so much, Cody. Thanks for having me. At this stage of the show, most podcasts will ask you to go and leave a five-star rating. But if you're going to go somewhere, I'd rather you go and check out Athletic Greens. If you follow me on social media, you'll see me doing two things, exercising and traveling. At my last checkup, my doctor told me I had the lowest cholesterol she'd ever seen, but I was crucially low in a whole range of vitamins and minerals that I'd never heard of. And as a result, my hair was in terrible shape. I went looking for the best all-in-one solution I could find, and I landed on Athletic Greens. 
I found it an easy habit to get on board with. A simple routine of one scoop in some cold water every morning before I have breakfast and I have all my bases covered. And now my hair is back to normal. And if you still don't believe me, I'm an Australian promoting a product created by a New Zealander, so you know I'm not joking around. I can't stress this enough. Jump over to athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody and claim your special offer today. Five free travel packs with your first purchase. athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.